1: The author of The New Eagles Encyclopedia, Ray Dittinger.
0: Ray Dittinger, author of The New Eagles Encyclopedia. What's new? (laughs) Well, um,
1: there's actually a lot new since the first Eagles Encyclopedia. The first Eagles Encyclopedia came out in 2005, which was right after the Eagles had gone to the Super Bowl in Jacksonville. Uh, And uh, nine years doesn't seem like a long time. But nine years in pro football is a very long time. A a lot of things change. Um, Coaches change. Quarterbacks change. Fan bases change. Cities change. Circumstances change. Statistics obviously change. Uh, And the Eagles are uh, a much different team today than they were uh, in 2005. And so, yeah, I mean, the New Eagles Encyclopedia, it's, it's really a very new book. I had to go back and rewrite a lot of the past stuff because the first book, came out right after they were at Super Bowl so Donovan McNabb was on top of the world Andy Reid was on top of the world Terrell Owens was the toast of the town Uh, well all of that stuff has changed you know Andy Reid has already gone on to Kansas City Donovan McNabb's out of football Uh, Terrell Owens went from hero to pariah in this city Um, so all of that stuff had to be totally rewritten and reworked just brought up to the current and then you add on the arrival of Chip Kelly and the emergence of Nick Foles and all the things that have happened with this franchise, so the New Eagles Encyclopedia is indeed a new encyclopedia.
0: How long have you been an Eagles fan?
1: Um, as a fan, oh my heavens, uh, since I was uh, since I was eight years old. I mean, which goes back into the early '50s. Um, if it, it, my parents were huge Eagles fans, I mean, I grew up in a family where Sunday was all about pro football, and uh, and and my mother being an equal partner in this. It isn't just it was my dad and. You know, my mom kind of was along for the ride. I mean, she was every bit as much of a fan, every bit as much of a critic. Uh, and so, from the time I could really get up and walk, I mean, I was I was going with them to Eagles training camp uh, up at uh, which was then in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, that was our summer vacation every year. My dad would get two two weeks off from the steel mill, and uh, while all other families were going to the Jersey Shore or going to the Poconos, uh, we packed up and went to Hershey and would spend two weeks up there watching the Eagles practice, uh, and in fact, there's a picture in the book, um, which I found in my dad's desk drawer after he passed away when we were cleaning out the house, was a picture of me as a 10-year-old with Chuck Bednarik at the Eagles training camp, uh, and I had totally forgotten about that picture, but as soon as I saw it, it brought back all those memories, and uh, and I said, you know what, in the new encyclopedia, i I'm, i got to get that in there, so that's you know, that my history with this team goes back that far. Who were some of the teams you followed, the players? Who
0: were your heroes then? Oh,
1: God, uh, Tommy McDonald was my favorite player. Uh, ben Narek was great, obviously, and, and, there were, and there were some great players. But th- if you're talking about the classic boyhood hero, hero-worship thing, it was Tommy McDonald. Who was um, the quarterback when you started following them? The quarterback, when I, when I first started going to the games, it was actually a two-quarterback system. It was a guy named Adrian Burke and a guy named Bobby Thomason. They were the two quarterbacks. Um, and then they drafted Sonny Jurgensen, and then Jurgensen played for a year or so, and then they made the trade for Norm Van Brocklin, and they brought Van Brocklin in in 1958. Uh, And Van Brocklin was only here for three years. He came in as as a veteran player, really kind of at the end of his career. But he took him to the World Championship in 1960, and then he retired. Um, But in terms of just the hero worship thing, uh, it was Tommy McDonald. I I just, as a kid, I just identified with McDonald because he was so small. Uh, and he was the littlest guy on the field, and he always wore short sleeves, even in freezing cold weather. You know, he didn't wear a face mask. Uh, it was sort of like he was he was just showing that I'm as tough as you are, even though he was playing in a big man's game. Uh, and just the enthusiasm that he played with was was the enthusiasm of a 10-year-old boy. I mean, just everything about him was excited. He was always hugging guys, and he, you'd tackle him, and he would jump right up. And... Um, and as a kid, you identified with that. You know, you, you, your feeling was, you know, if I was playing, that's how I'd play. And, and, and Tommy projected that. And so when I used to go to Eagles training camp uh, with my parents in, in Hershey, um, the, the players used to have this long walk from where they dressed to the practice field. And little kids would line up along the way to, um, to run with the players and get their autographs or, or ask, can I carry your helmet? Uh and so I would always, for those two weeks, I would always stand there and I'd wait for Tommy McDonald to come by. And I would say, you know, can, you know hey, can, Tommy, can I carry your helmet? Or, and, uh, you know, and, and there were a lot of kids asking. So some days I got it and some days I didn't. But uh, uh, on the days when he would say, yeah, sure, here. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm carrying Tommy McDonald's helmet. And he'd be talking to me the whole way. And that's, I mean, I remember that like it was a week ago. And so getting a little ahead of the story here, but, I mean, years later, when I became a sports writer and became a voter for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, I sort of began a little campaign to try and get Tommy McDonald in the Hall of Fame because I thought he clearly deserved it. And uh, and when Tommy actually did get voted into the Hall of Fame in 1998, uh, he asked me to be his presenter. So, I mean, you talk about your life coming full circle. I mean, here, on the biggest day of his life, I'm there sharing it with him, and I'm the little kid who carried his helmet back 60 years ago. That's... That, to me, is one of the most uh, uh, sweetest memories that I have of my association with the team is, is the relationship, as the years of watching him play and how great he was and seeing them win a championship, and then years later being able to, in some small way, help him get to the Hall of Fame, and then being able to share that day with him. That was, that was really special.
0: What do you remember about the 1960 championship season?
1: Everything. <laughs> Everything. I could take you through it every single game. Uh, I won't do that, but I could. Um, I, I remember um, – the thing I remember about it was it was so uh, unforeseen. Um, they, were, they were not the best team in football that year. Uh, even the players will tell you that. Um, but it was a year when everything kind of came together. Uh, and I, I've often said that that, was, that 1960 season um, was like a genie that came out of a bottle in City Hall Courtyard. And, and for one year, just granted, Philadelphia, it's every football wish, everything you want that could happen, every break you want, every tip pass, everything's going to go your way for one year. And then the genie goes away. And that's kind of what it was. I mean, for that year, everything they did went right. And they wound up, they were 10-2 and two in the regular season. It was only a 12-game season then. And they get to the championship game. And in a championship game, which – there are so many interesting facets about it. The championship game was played on a Monday uh, at noon at Franklin Field. Now, can you imagine? It's, it's, it's the Super Bowl. I mean, it's the NFL championship game. Could you imagine the Super Bowl being played at noon on Monday? It's unthinkable, but that was pro football in 1960. That was because Christmas Day was Sunday, and back then the NFL would not play on Christmas Day. So they played the game on the 26th, which was Monday. Um, but the, the opponent they drew was the Green Bay Packers, uh, who were coached by Vince Lombardi and they had 11 Hall of Famers on that team. Uh, and man for man, the Packers were a better team. But the Eagles had been beating better teams all year, and they were winning on, on, the, on the strength of their collective will and the confidence they had built up. And uh, in that championship game, I mean, it was a bitterly fought game. It was a fierce, fierce game. Uh, but the Eagles wound up winning at 17-13. to 13. And it has the, the poetic kind of ending with Chuck Bednarik, uh, who's the great who's their great iconic linebacker making the tackle that saves the game at the, at the nine yard line. You know, Tackling Jim Taylor who's also a Hall of Famer the game comes down to these two Hall of Fame players colliding at the nine yard line and Bednarik wrestling him to the ground and then holding him down until the clock gets to zero and then saying you can get up now this game's over uh, and then walking off the field and this was Bednarik had played the whole game he had played both ways center and linebacker uh, he had played 58-and-a-half of the 60 minutes at the age of 35. And then he makes the tackle that saves the game and wins the championship, and then he walks off in the arms of the fans. I mean, it's, it's your Roy Hobbs moment right there is basically what it is. So do I remember the 60 season? Yeah, I remember the 60 season.
0: <laughs> and it was the last game for Norm Van Brocklin and Buck Shaw, the coach. That's correct.
1: The head coach and the quarterback both retired after that game. Um, that's the only time it's ever happened in history of pro football. I mean, we've had coaches retire. And we've had quarterbacks retire, but we've never had both the coach and the quarterback retire at the same time. But there was no surprise that they had said up front that this was going to be it for them, win or lose. Uh, Buckshaw, they, they both came here at a point in their career where they knew this was going to be their last stop. And when they came here, they said that this is a fairly short-term kind of thing. Everybody knew that. You know, Buckshaw was an older man. Uh, Van Brocklin was well along in his career. Uh, so you knew they weren't going to be here a whole long time. And at the start of the 60 season, Shaw said, you know, I, I think this is it for me. Uh, one more year and I'm, I'm going home. I'm going home to California. And Van Brocklin felt that he didn't want to push it any further in his career. So he said, I'm going to play one more year. But I think they both had the feeling that uh, even though they didn't have great horses, they had good enough horses. And if everything came together, they had a chance to win a championship. And I, and I think the fact that everybody knew that, the, that Buck, who the players really loved, and Van Brocklin, who the players really respected and feared to a certain degree, that they both wanted this so much on in their last year. I think that that was one of the forces that kind of galvanized and drove this team, that they, they kind of won that one for Buck and Dutch, I think. Was the game on television? The game was not on television in Philadelphia. The game was televised nationally, but it was not televised in Philadelphia because there was a blackout rule back then uh, that games within like a 90-mile radius, the games were blacked out. Uh, so if you were in the city of Philadelphia when the Eagles were playing for the world championship, you couldn't see the game. You either had to have a ticket or you listened to it on the radio or you did what my neighbors did, which was get in the car and drive to Trenton and check into a hotel and watch the game there. You, you drove outside the blackout zone and checked into a motel somewhere and got your chips and your drinks and all that stuff and you sat down and you watched it on TV. But that, that's true. Now the game was replayed that night on local TV, they replayed the game like after the news, like at eleven thirty on one of the local channels. But uh, it was it was not shown locally at that time. It's hard for people to believe. It's, it's very hard for people to believe. But again, that was that was pro football in nineteen sixty.
0: When you put a book like this together, is it hard to figure out what to leave out?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, which is funny to say when you're talking about a book that's four hundred and forty pages. You think what could you possibly have left out? Um, but yeah. I mean, there were things that I, uh, I mean, I wish I could have put in a hundred more pictures. You know, I, I, I wish I could have written more about certain players. I wish I could have written more about certain seasons. Uh, but at a certain point, you kind of have to do a little of your own pre-editing with it. But uh, uh, as you said, the book is, the book is more than a hundred pages thicker than the original encyclopedia. It's now 440 pages, Uh, and uh, I don't think we left a lot out. I don't think we left out anything really important. Um, We tried to, I tried to cover all the really uh, clearly significant stuff, the stuff, I mean, the really landmark players, the great players, the great seasons. They all had to be accounted for, but I also wanted to include, and I have a chapter in there um, called Sidelines, which is just about all the Quirky things and the odd things and the little things that happen over the course of time. Um, for example, I felt like you had to do something separate just about Vince Papale, the story of Vince Papale. I mean, the guy, you know, he's not—he's certainly not going to go down as one of the 100 greatest players in Eagles history. He's never going to go into the Hall of Fame and all that stuff. But he's, it's an interesting story that a guy who was 30 years old had never played college football, was basically a season ticket holder, went to an open tryout, got an invitation to training camp wound up making the team and playing three seasons in the NFL. I mean, that's kind of an interesting story. So that those kinds of things, I don't want to call them quirky because that's, that's not really fair, but those kinds of unusual little sidebar stories, I felt like they had to be represented in the book too.
0: I have to ask you about this photograph of Chuck Bednarik. This was not in the original book,
1: but right. where did you come up with that one, and why is he wearing armor? <laughs> that was a Life magazine photograph, uh, and that was the year, that was 1960, And that was the year that he played both ways. That was the year that because of an injury to one of the linebackers, Bednarik was the center on the team, but one of the veteran linebackers got hurt. And the backup was a rookie who the coach really didn't trust. So he asked Bednarik, who had been a great linebacker in the 50s, you know, hey, Chuck, can you play play linebacker too? You know, can you? And Chuck said, absolutely. So Bednarik winds up playing the second half of the season. He winds up playing. 60 minutes of every game. You know, every time there's a change of possession, you know, 21 guys leave the field, 21 guys come on, and there's one guy still standing there with his hands on his hips waiting for the waiting for him and it's him. So that's how he became known as pro football's iron man. That he was he was this, he was the last of the true 60-minute man. So they put him in a suit of armor and posed him at Franklin Field and did a whole story about what a remarkable achievement that was that a guy at his age could do what he did. Uh, and not just beyond be the field, but, but playing absolutely great football. I mean, Benarek makes several plays in that season that are season-turning plays that year. So he was uh, – the Benarek story was a big, big story in 1960. And so Life Magazine wanted to do a big profile of him. So they put pro football's Iron
0: Man in a suit of armor, which seems only fitting. You, you mentioned the sidelines portion of the book, and you have a, a, a bunch of top ten lists, best and worst, best trades, worst trades, best draft picks, worst draft picks. Was that fun to put together? Yeah, it was. It, 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 was, it was deciding. I tried to just keep it to 10.
1: I tried to just keep it top 10. There were a lot more. And that the was list one of the harder th- things I had to decide was because there were so many bad trades. <laughs> and there were so many bad draft picks and good ones that uh, sometimes deciding which ones to put in, which ones to leave out, that took me a lot of time because it was totally me. I mean, I didn't do a poll. You know, th- there's never been a survey done. I mean, this was just purely off the top of my head.
0: And if you put the, uh, these lists next to the lists in the original Eagles Encyclopedia, you moved some around.
1: I've moved some around. Uh, well, some things have changed in the course of nine years. Um, like I have one of the best and worst is the uh, worst free agent signings. Um, and so I, Namdi Asamoah had not
0: joined the team. Three of them in 2011.
1: Yes. Well, that that was part of what <laughs> what was laughingly called the dream team. Uh, was uh, led off by Namdi Asamoah, who the Eagles signed. Yeah, he hadn't. He wasn't here, but. So when I had to put together a new list, a more inclusive list of bad free agent signings, yeah, a lot of those guys had to be in there because Namdi had to be in there. Uh, Ronnie Brown had to be in there, and Vince Young had to be in there um, out of the top ten. There's no doubt about that. And the one that everybody will remember is is Namdi because of the amount of money they paid to sign him. And when he came here, uh, I mean, the two years he played, was it was just a disaster. I mean, everybody will remember that whole, ex- that whole experience as being a bad experience, and the guy they'll remember most is Asamoah because
0: so much was expected of him, and it was such a disappointment. Uh, I uh, did notice this one thing. There was uh, Pete Pios you have as the number two best draft pick, and he was not on your list at all in the previous book.
1: Right. Right. Um, I rethought. I, I rethought everything in the first book. I went, but when th- when we decided that we were going to go ahead and do the second edition, um, I started off by re- rereading the first edition and rethinking a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, are there things that I would change or are there things that I omitted? Um, and one of the things I thought about when I looked at the draft picks, you know, I, th- I thought, well, you know, Pios was a third-round pick, so and that's not. When you're thinking of great draft picks, you're thinking of guys like Harold Carmichael that was a seventh-round pick that turns out to be a great player. Or, or you're thinking about like a guy like Bobby Walston who was a 14th-round pick, like a real afterthought who comes on it. But I, you know, the third-round pick, yeah, that, that's pretty high. You would expect him to be a good player. But I looked at the P.O. story and I thought, no, that's, he really belongs in there because they when they drafted him, he was still in the Army. He was still fighting in the war. So they, they used a third-round draft pick on a guy they weren't even sure was going to come home. But the fact was he was, he, his, his college class was, was – graduating um he was eligible for the draft uh he had been a great player at the university of indiana and even though they weren't sure when he was going to come back or even if he was going to come back um the coach said the, the greasy Neal, who was the coach his famous quote was i can wait for a player like Pijos." so they used a third round draft pick on him thinking that when he comes back here you know if, if he wants to play football if he wants to if he wants to get back in the game again i want him to play for our team and so when he came back, Pios joined the Eagles and became really one of the great players in the history of the franchise, a Hall of Fame player, led the league in, re- led the league in pass receptions three years in a row. Uh, and when you think that his career ended more than half a century ago and you think of how much the game has exploded offensively and how much it's a big – it's more of a passing game now than it's ever been, the fact that Pios is still ranks in the top five of all-time receivers in the history of this franchise is – pretty remarkable i mean the fact that his numbers uh, achieved in that era of football in 12 game seasons that they have stood up for more than half a century just gives you an idea what a player he was who's first number one is harold carmichael uh who i mentioned was the seventh round draft choice from southern S- university six foot six six foot Har- seven. Harold was six foot eight six foot eight and uh he's still he is still the tallest wide receiver to play in the nfl uh, I mean, a lot of teams are getting bigger receivers now. You're seeing a lot of bigger receivers in the league. The Eagles even have, you know, Riley Cooper, and they have some guys that are tall. But there's nobody as tall as Harold. Harold is six feet eight, uh, and he was a seventh-round pick uh, coming out of college because he played at a small school. Um, he didn't start playing football until a little bit later. He'd been a basketball player. Um, he was very, very unpolished as a player when he when he arrived. Um, But I do remember when he walked on the field for the first time for that first training camp, when the sight of him walking onto the field in his uniform, this six-foot, towering six-foot-eight guy, uh, your thought was, oh, my, what a weapon this guy could be if he can play at all. And he um, still
0: had to catch the ball.
1: And he still had to catch the ball, and he still had to be able to run, and he had to be able to take a hit. I mean, nobody knew any of that stuff. And then he came here, and he had a, a long career and wound up catching more passes and scoring more touchdowns than any player in the history of the franchise.
0: Uh, well, we've got to get back to the best and worst for just a minute, and uh, worst trades uh, should probably be mentioned, and that's the one that involved Sonny Jurgensen and Norm Snead.
1: Yes, and don't forget the two defensive backs. It was Sonny Jurgensen and Gummy Carr traded for Norm Snead and Claude Crabb. And Gummy Carr, who, who later on had coached in the NFL, for forever, used to joke that actually the trade was me for Crab and the two quarterbacks were just throwing. <laughs> that, that was that was Gummy's recollection of it. But yeah, I mean that's, I think that's probably the worst trade uh, when you think about it. I mean Jurgensen for Sneed, uh, Jurgensen goes to Washington and becomes a Hall of Fame quarterback down there, uh, and winds up passing for more yards than any quarterback in the decade of the '60s and Norm Snead comes to Philadelphia, and, and not totally his fault. I mean, the situation was bad, and the coaching was bad, and a lot of things were bad around him. But bottom line is Norm was here for seven seasons and only had a winning record one, one of those seven seasons. So not at all a fair trade, and it's, it's remembered as, as one that people just say, what in the world are they thinking? I mean, how could you trade Sonny Jurgensen? for Norm Snead. And Sonny Jurgensen went down to Washington and had a great, great career. And Sonny's still an iconic figure in Washington. I mean, he's, he's beloved in Washington. I mean, he still does the radio broadcasts, and people down there just adore him. I mean, he went down there and just totally reinvented himself. And he had a rough ride in Philadelphia. People booed him. Uh, and again, it wasn't really his fault. The team kind of fell apart after 1960. Uh, he got a shoulder injury, which affected him. And for a couple of years, he just didn't have anybody to play around him. And so it all kind of fell on him. And as often happens, people blame the quarterback, sometimes unfairly. And so by the time the 60 63 season ended, Sonny was he was ready to go. And so they, the new coach came in and wanted to sort of purge the past and get rid of a lot of the old guys and rebuild a team in his image. That's the coach, Joe Q. Harik. And so he started by trading the quarterback. He traded Jurgensen for Snead. And uh, you know Jurgensen goes on to, to the Hall of Fame career, and Norm Snead has uh, seven – To be kind, mediocre years in Philadelphia.
0: When you watch a game, do you care if the Eagles win?
1: Not really, which seems odd, I suppose. How can
0: you do that? Um, It's my
1: job, you know. I I I like to see them win, Uh, and and the reason I like to see see I don't really root for I don't root for the team. Uh, I don't root for the coaches and the players. I don't have that kind of personal connection. Um, But I'm happy when they win because I'm happy for the city. I'm happy for the fans. Uh, I really do think that this is one of those cities where the, uh, the winning and the losing has a carryover effect to the whole city for days at a time. I've often said that on, on a Monday after an Eagles loss you can feel it walking the streets, you can feel it on the subways, you can see it on the roads. You know, If they win, everybody's happier and if they lose, people are grumpier. It, it's, it, it, you see that in some cities um, I, pittsburgh's kinda that way chicago's kinda that way but boy you really see it in philadelphia so when they win i'm happy because the city's happy but as far as actually rooting for the team in the same way that i rooted for the team as a boy no after forty years of covering them it becomes a more objective process
0: what was your first job as a sports journalist
1: uh, my first job as a sports journalist was i got hired by the philadelphia bulletin in nineteen sixty nine and they put me on high school sports they hired me i was just a kid i was just one year out of college so the sports editor brought me in, and uh, the guy who had been covering high school sports uh, had retired. A guy named Jack Ryan had been covering high schools for years and years and years. So Jack had retired, so they needed a guy to cover high schools. Uh, and the sports editor hired me and put me on a high school beat. So I covered high school sports for a year. Uh, that was 1969. And then one year later, the guy who had been covering the Eagles retired. And uh, the sports editor gave me the opportunity to make the jump from high schools to the Eagles. So I started, co- I started actually covering them in 70, and I've been covering them in one fashion or another ever since.
0: So two years out of college, you were, you were being paid to cover your heroes? Yeah, and it was a bad
1: idea. <laughs> it, was a bad, it was a bad idea from the newspaper standpoint because I wasn't ready for it. The, the sports editor, uh, g- I mean, he gave me a tremendous opportunity, and it was really like the – that was, the, that was the job I always wanted to have. I mean, when I was a kid and loving the Eagles and going to training camp and everything, um, I mean, we used to get the Philadelphia Bulletin delivered to our doorstep. And so I, I would rip it open, and the first thing I would do go to the sports page. And the first thing I would do would read the Eagles story. And, you know, then the guy who covered the Eagles was a guy named Huey Brown. And the columnist was a guy named Sandy Grady. And I read Huey Brown's story, and I read Sandy Grady every day. Um, so I, I – I, that was really what I wanted to be I wanted to be a sports writer I wanted to work for the Philadelphia Bulletin and I wanted to cover the Eagles uh, and lo and behold two years out of college the sports editor of the Bulletin handed it to me on a silver platter he hired me at the Bulletin and then one year after that he, he puts me on the Eagles I had my dream job at 23 um, and while it was a dream job there was enormous crash and burn potential there I mean because that he was throwing me into the deep end of the pool, and I didn't have water wings. You know? and, and so for that first couple of years, I mean, I was in way over my head. Um, I remember, as excited as I was, I remember getting ready to go to that first training camp in the summer of 1970. I was in the office. I was packing my stuff up, getting ready to go to the training camp, which was then at Albright College in Reading, and uh, I'm packing all my stuff up and getting my typewriter together and my notepads. And uh, the sports editor comes by, and he says, uh, well, you're heading up to training camp today. How are you feeling? And uh, I, in a moment of total candor, I said, I'm not sure I'm ready. And he said, get ready. And, and, what, he, and what he was saying was, look, I gave you this opportunity. Don't screw it up. And it was, when I, at the whole, the whole drive up to Reading, all I kept thinking about that was, you know, A, this is the job I always wanted, but B, I'm not so sure I'm ready for it right now. And um, I remember that year uh, there was a game that the Eagles played against Washington at Franklin Field. It was their last year at Franklin Field, and I'm in a press box. And the NFL PR guy came down and said to me at halftime, he said, the commissioner wants to see you, and at that time it was Pete Rosell. And I said, why does he want to see me? He says, he always likes to meet all the new beat guys. So he walks me down to where Roselle is sitting at the end of the press box. And I still remember Roselle was sitting there in a beautiful camel hair coat, and he has binoculars around his neck. And he was eating a hot dog, which I thought was funny. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I sit down, and, and he shakes my hand, and he says, welcome to the NFL, which I thought was kind of interesting. And, um, and we're talking, and, uh, and, and he's talking about my, my background and, all that stuff, and um, he said, "So how are you feeling? How, how, how are you enjoying this?" And I said, "I said I'm loving it. I said I love pro football. I've, i I love this team. I've covered. I've watched them since I was a kid. I said it's a dream. It's a, it's really a dream. I feel like I'm living a dream." I said, I "Just don't feel like I'm, I don't know if I'm ready for it yet." And he said, "You know what? He said I'm going to tell you what the owners told me when they made me commissioner because they made Rozelle commissioner. When he was like a thirty. I mean, he was just a kid himself." And he said, "They told me. He said you'll grow into it," was what they told me. And he said, I did. And he said, and you will. And I remember feeling kind of good about that because it was coming, first of all, it's coming from the commissioner. And it seemed genuine. It seemed like it, it came from a real place. And I think when you look back on it, yeah, that is kind of how it happened. I think I did kind of grow into it. It took a while, but I think I grew into it.
0: Well, you remember the first day when you had to actually get up your courage to go and talk to the players? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. How'd they treat you?
1: Um, the young guys fine the older guys not so good Um, the young guys the rookies that I associated more with them because they were as new and scared as I was Um, the veteran guys uh, it was it was a little bit tougher Uh, Sneed, the quarterback was was sort of at the end of his run in Philadelphia and he'd been kicked around and beaten up by the press and so he was sort of naturally suspicious and wary of all reporters, especially young guys like me, who he didn't know. So I didn't, I didn't have a very good relationship with Sneed. Um, the, the the head coach was a guy named Jerry Williams. He and I got along very well. He was a nice man, uh, and uh, and and I think he kind of understood that I was a young guy trying to trying my way. The what I found was really interesting was they had an assistant coach named Charlie Gower. Was uh, a guy who was a, who was a local guy. Who went to Upper Darby High School. Was a coach in the NFL for a long time. He was actually an assistant coach on the 1960 team that won the World Championship. Very very smart guy. Um, and Charlie was coaching the team. He was coaching the offensive backs in 1970 when I got there. And uh, I had been I, I, camp had been going on for like a week, maybe a little bit more. And I was just, every day I was writing three, four, five stories. I mean, I was just, I, I was trying to compensate for what I didn't know by r- overwriting things. And so um, one day practice ends and we're walking off the practice field and Charlie comes walking over to where I am uh, and he says, um, um, I just don't remember this, Charlie said, uh, you seem like a nice boy. <laughs> and he said, uh, uh, I've been reading all your stuff in the paper. Uh, and he said, I can tell you're trying really hard. He said, but you don't really know very much about football. <laughs> uh, he said, but, he said, um, he said if you want to learn, he said, every night in the dorms, he said, I, I watch film. Uh, and he said, if you want to come up some night, any night, and just sit in with me, I'll try and show you a few things. He said, you don't have to. Uh, he said, but if you, if you want to, he said, I, I want you to know my door is open. Uh, And I thought that was just so generous of him because he certainly didn't have to do that. Um, But I, I think he saw that I was trying to do the job as well as I could, but I was just kind of over my head. So it was his way of trying to help bring me along. And so those nights and I went. Pretty much every night in the dorms. That was back in the days when the press could actually go into the players' dorms. I would go into the dorms and I would go down to Charlie's office, and he would sit and he would and we would look at film, and he would show me things and he would explain things. And it'd say, "See, you see, yesterday when you wrote about blah 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 blah, you thought that's what you saw, but that isn't the way it is. It was really meant to be this." And oh, I see. So those nights really taught me a lot, and it and it taught me that every all the conclusions you kind of draw watching things one time or when you watch a game aren't necessarily reality you know sometimes you have to find out where the reality is and uh, and so those I I today I'm a real film wonk I mean I watch a lot of it I study the tape I try to get up on things and that's and it really started with those summers up in Reading and and Charlie kind of taking me inside the game Uh, and it was a real eye-opener and tremendously helpful.
0: Was there some moment or some story you did or something that happened that made you think, well, maybe I really can do this? It took a while.
1: It, 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 took, it, it took a while. Um, I mean, I, I felt for the first year or so I was kind of thrashing around. Um, I, I remember being real happy with, uh, with the story that I wrote uh, off of the Super Bowl, off of I guess what maybe the third Super Bowl I covered uh, was the Super Bowl when the Miami Dolphins completed their uh, perfect season when they beat Washington, uh, with the, beat the Washington Redskins to complete the 17 and 0 season. I remember f- understanding that this was a this was real history that I had witnessed that day. A yeah, team had completed a perfect season had never been done before in pro football. And and this was a real kind of watershed, and you know a great coach and Don Shula had finally won the championship that had always eluded him. I mean, there, there was just an awful lot of really big moments that had kind of all played out that day, uh, and I remember sitting in the press box surrounded by all the great writers of the time, you know the Red Smiths and the Jim Murrays and all these guys, and and here we all are trying to put that history into our own words, and. I remember just when I finished my story and I reread it thinking oh that's good you know. and I mean not to compare it to what everybody else did but I, I really felt like that might have been the first time that I really felt like what I wrote did justice to what I had witnessed and and that was kind of a big moment that I was able to kind of pull that all together on the biggest game of the season and uh, and from my standpoint, I think that was, that was kind of a real step forward in my career. What was the funnest Eagles team to cover? A lot of people say the Buddy Ryan team because they were so colorful, uh, and they were. Uh, but I, I, I think the Vermeule team. Uh, I think Dick Vermeule's team. Um, because I, I was there pretty much every day from when he arrived and watched him build that thing, um, and and I, I got really close to that group of players, that group of guys, and and they were good good people, good good guys, uh, good people to be around, uh, and largely because of Vermeil who's who's a remarkable individual. Uh, I've been in sports in I've covered every sport you can imagine for over 40 years, and uh, Vermeil is 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 the single most remarkable guy I've ever been around, uh, in terms of his uh, his basic decency his honesty uh, and his ability to uh, to motivate and identify the best qualities of his people and draw them out of them Uh, I've never seen anybody that's as good at that as Dick is and so being around him and watching him take over that team which was a which is a really bad team in bad shape when he took it over and just mold it the way he molded it uh, and take it from where, he, from where it was to a Super Bowl team in five years. Yeah, that was something. And to, and to watch it day by day by day take shape, yeah, that's, that, that to me was the fun of it. And watching how, uh, how hard he worked those guys uh, and what he demanded of them uh, and what they gave him back and the bond that developed between them as a result, um, how much he loved those guys for giving them what they gave him and how much they respected him in the giving uh, was something that was uh, really profound. It, it really was. That's, that was a remarkable team, and, and it sort of came, all came together in that championship game against the Cowboys on that frigid day at, at, at Veterans Stadium when uh, you know, they had kind of built that team for over five years, piece by piece and player by player and week by week, practice by practice, to get to that point and it had been so much about the cowboys it had been so much about the cowboys and that it all came together for this championship game and it was and it was the cowboys they were playing it wouldn't if it had been the atlanta falcons or the green bay packers it would have been a championship game but it wouldn't have felt the same way there was it, it just seemed right that they had gotten to this point and the team they had to play was the cowboys it just seemed so right and i remember the night before i was doing a tv show and it was called showdown in philly and it was being televised back to Dallas, and so we were. On, I was on the set with uh, Tech Schramm, who was the Cowboys' general manager, and Drew Pearson, who was one of the Cowboys' players, and Skip Bayless, who was a writer in Dallas at the time, and there was me and Jim Murray, who was the Eagles' general manager, and Vern Lundquist, who's now with CBS but was then a Dallas guy. Was doing the mod. was the moderator, and we were kicking it back and forth about how the game was going to play out. And the Cowboys were actually favored in the game, even though it was in Philadelphia. And uh, we came down to the end, and. Uh, it was, and Verland was said, oh, it's prediction time. Everybody make your prediction. So uh, the players, of course, you know, did, they, they were hedging. But they didn't want to say it. And so it came to me, and I said, I have no doubt the Eagles are going to win this game. And they were, everybody was sort of shocked that I was so certain about it. But I, I was. I was absolutely certain about it because there just seemed to be a rightness about it, that everything that Vermeil had been doing for five years was kind of building to this game. And there was no way they were going to lose. I just felt that. So, that was the most fun to me was watching that whole thing over the course of five years and and watching a master coach at work. And I and that's what I consider Vermeule to be.
0: Was Andy Reid fun to cover?
1: <laughs> fun in the winning. I mean, they won a lot, um, but there wasn't much fun to Andy. Um, anybody that saw him knew that he was uh, um, that he was very guarded. Uh, didn't offer you much. Uh, it's funny, away from the microphone and away from the camera, there, there really was some personality there. Uh, but you never saw it. Uh, I mean, he came off as rather humorless and rather distant. Uh, I mean, I, whenever you were dealing with Andy, you, there was kind of there was the moat and then there was the wall and then there was the gate. And then somewhere back there, there was the guy. and But good luck trying to get there. <laughs> and, uh, and, that's, and that's kind of the way he was. Now, the player saw another side of him, and if you got him away from the cameras, you saw another side of him, uh, but in terms of from a reporter trying to cover him, um, fun isn't the word I would use to describe it, no.
0: Well, uh, it, it seems that we could flip this book open to any page, and you could just discourse on whatever it fell to, but uh, somebody we have to talk about before we run out of time is Donovan McNabb. Mm-hmm. Where does he rank in the Eagles history?
1: Certainly one of the best players. Uh I, I don't think, a lot of people, the question people say is, is, is he a Hall of Famer? Mm, Eagles Hall of Fame, and there is, there is an Eagles Hall of Fame, and yeah, he should be in there. Um, but and then people say, well, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I don't think he's that. I, I think Don, in, in Don, Don's career, I would say that he was he ranged anywhere from being a good to very good quarterback. I don't think he was great. You know? and, and to me, to go in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I think you have to be described at some point great and I don't think Don ever was that, but he won a lot of games, uh, and uh, and there are people who will say, and it's an interesting question because it comes up all day, who's the greatest quarterback in Eagles history? If you just go by the numbers, if you just look at the stats, oh, it's McNabb by a mile because he, he threw the most passes, completed the most passes, most yards, most touchdowns, all that stuff, uh, way more than Jaworski and Cunningham and all those other guys, um, but and if you, so if you just want to go by that, if that's your measuring stick, then you'd say McNabb. Um, I, when people ask me the question, I say, the question really is, who played the position the best? And that's something apart from the numbers. You know, who played the position at the highest level? And it was Van Brocklin. Now, he only was here for three years. So you look at his numbers, and it's, hmm, you know, I mean, they're way down the list. But to me, who was the best quarterback? The best quarterback is the guy that played the position the best and that was Van Brocklin. You go back again to 1960, it's the last time this team won a world championship, and they would not have won it with any other quarterback. I mean, they won it purely because of Van Brocklin. Is
0: it hard to compare, or even impossible, to compare the game of 1960 to the present-day game, and compare who was better?
1: Very hard. Uh, I, I think that uh, whenever you get into the discussion, and again, kind of get back to quarterbacks. Everybody seems to want to take it back there. Who's the greatest quarterback of all time in football? And when I get asked that question, I say, I think you have to make draw a dividing line in 1978. I think the game changed profoundly in 1978 when they changed the rules. Um, That's when they prevented the the bump and run. They wouldn't allow contact with receivers more than five yards off the line of scrimmage. Um, They they took the head slap away from defensive players. They weren't allowed to do that. Uh, They allowed offensive linemen to extend their arms rather than block in here, which made it a lot easier to block. So they basically did everything they could to open up the passing game. And right at that same time, Bill Walsh came along with what is now called the West Coast offense, where they spread the field and began throwing all these short passes and getting yards after the catch. So the game totally changed in 1978. Uh, so it's all, it's really unfair to try and compare the quarterbacks before that to the quarterbacks since, because they're really playing a different game now. Um, so you know, whenever I get asked that, I, I, to me the greatest quarterback of the, if you want to call it the modern era, is still Joe Montana, I feel. And the greatest quarterback of the pre-'78, of, of the older game, uh, to me is Unitas, John Unitas, who played for Baltimore. Um, those, those are the best. But to try and compare Unitas to Montana, I mean, some people will do it. I just think it's I just think it' it doesn't make much sense because
0: really they're playing very different games with uh, the concern uh, today in the present day about concussions, uh, head injuries, will the game change in the future uh, to prevent that? It's changing even as we speak I mean it's they're
1: doing everything they can in, in terms of the rules in terms of the equipment, everything they can to try and uh, and make it a safer game which I'm all in favor of that. I want to make the game as safe as it can possibly be, um, but it's hard to do. I mean, the game by its very nature is inherently a contact sport, and you get guys this big, this strong, and this fast colliding, people are going to get hurt. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the game, and that's that's kind of what the game is built upon. Now, as you can make it as safe as you can within, within that framework, um, and I think that they should, and I think they're trying, but one of the things they're doing now is, it, it, it's becoming a very hard game to officiate because they're trying to, they're trying to micromanage every tackle, you know, and all this contact. And you know, right now, defensive coaches, defensive players really don't know what they're allowed to do or not do, and it's it's hard to play that way. You know, guys have been brought up, and from the time they were playing Pop Warner football when they were eight, nine years old, they've been taught what you're allowed to do and this is the way to play and you work all the way up through high school and college playing that way, and you get to the NFL, and now they hand you a different rule book, and you have to try and adjust your game on the fly in the middle of a game with things happening in split seconds, it's really hard. And also for officials, all of a sudden now a play that was fine 10 years ago, now you got to look at it and say, gee, I'm not so sure it's allowed. And so you see a lot of hesitation on the part of players, a lot of hesitation on the part of the officials, and I think sometimes it, it gets in the way of the product. You know, I'm a fall for making the game safe, but I think people have to be a little realistic about just how much you can do. Are you a stats
0: guy? Mm. Do you like stats? Pretty much, yeah. Because you have a lot of stats in the back of the book. That was a big,
1: that was a big chore, updating that stats section, because a lot of the stats you know, have really changed over the, last, over the last nine years since we did the first book, but we tried to, we tried to get it as up-to-date
0: as we could. Are some stats valued more now than they used to be, or do they come up with new stats? Like in baseball, they're always coming up with new stats. Does football do that? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. There's the, the, the whole sort of sabermetrics thing that's become big in baseball with, with Bill James and so forth. There's there's sort of a football equivalent of that. There's a lot. Of, there's a group called the Football Outsiders that do a lot of sort of a, a Bill James kind of analysis of pro football, uh, where they break down the stats and what they consider to be the really meaningful stats versus the stats that they're just numbers, but they don't really impact that much the winning and the losing. So yeah, the game statistically, the game's evolving a lot. I, to me, the one stat that that just seems to still bear up uh, as a valid stat in terms of wins and losses is, is turnover differential. I mean, that's, I mean, that's been true from the beginning of time to today. And I think it always will be is just, the team that gives the ball up the most is, is a team that's going to lose. I mean, that's just the way it is. If you can... Typical typical game, you'll get... An offense will get 11 or 12 possessions where you'll get the ball. If you turn the ball over four times and, and give away four of your possessions and give the other team four more possessions, you don't have to think about the yards. You're just... In terms of the time you have the ball and the opportunity you have to do something with it, you really limit your chances to win. So... That turnover rate, what they call the turnover ratio, giveaway, takeaway, the difference, the team that wins that will usually win the game almost all the time. And that stat was true in Red Grange's era, and it's true
0: today. Can you describe a, a week for you, your work week during the football season?
1: Well, it's different than when I was at the newspaper. When I was at the newspaper, I was the quote-unquote beat man. So I was, at the, I was there every day for practice. I was in the locker room before. I was in the locker room after. I was at every press conference. And I was writing two, three stories every day. You know, now I've, I'm not in the newspaper anymore. I'm at TV and I'm doing radio. So Sunday, obviously, I'm at the game. I do pregame, Comcast Sportsnet. do postgame, Comcast Sportsnet. Uh, Monday, I do radio. Uh, Tuesday... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Monday I do radio and I do a TV show where we do an X's and O's film breakdown of the game, why Why this play worked, why this play didn't work. Then Tuesday I do radio, Wednesday I do radio, Thursday I do radio, Friday I come back into the studio and do a preview of the next game. Um, then Saturday I uh, do two radio and then Sunday back to the game again.
0: What do you mean by you do
1: radio? What do you do? Oh, um I do either a phone-in, uh, I either do a phone-in kind of update report uh, for one of the local sports talk stations, or in some cases two, and then on Saturdays and Sundays I do a, a, a three-hour sports talk show where we talk about the games, break down the games, do analysis, and take calls, from, take calls from listeners. So from the time the season kicks it off until Super Bowl, yeah, it's pretty much a seven-day-a-week proposition. Do you still write? I do. Uh, I do. Uh, I write for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles website. Uh, I write a, a column which is kind of, a, it's not called this, but it's kind of a back in the day. I write a piece about Eagles history and it all kind of ties into the Eagles Encyclopedia and things. I try to try to take things that are happening now uh, and, and, and sort of put them in some kind of historical context. Like a piece I just wrote was was about Zach Ertz, this young tight end that the Eagles had. He was a really good young player from Stanford that is on, is on pace to have a really good year and has a chance to go over 1,000 yards receiving. Uh, and I wrote about that's only happened with an Eagles tight end once in their history. Pete Redslaff, back in the 60s, was a great tight end uh, who went over 1,000 yards in 1965. It's only happened the one time, and I'm writing that Zach Ertz kind of could do that, and I use that as a jumping-off point to go back and retell, retell the story
0: of Pete Redslaff for the younger fans. When you watch game films, what do you watch for, and what do you see that the casual fan doesn't see? Um, I kind of watch the game
1: uh, inside out. I kind of watch it from the line, and then work my way out to the backs and the, and the guys handling the ball, because it really does start at the line of scrimmage. Um, if if you if your offensive and, if your offensive line doesn't win the battle at the line of scrimmage, then it's very hard for your quarterbacks, your backs, and your receivers to win the game. So I. That's one of the things that Charlie Gower started me out with when I was watching film with him back in Reading. Was he said, you got to watch the offensive line. The offensive line, he said, the guards will take you to the ball. You watch what they're doing. You watch the way the guards set up. If the guards fire out, it's a run. If the guards set up, and, and, and then you know it's a pass. Um, if the guards pull, they're always going to be going in the direction of the ball. So there's going to be a run. You just fi- Those guys will take you to the ball. But it all starts with them. So... In a nutshell, I mean, there's a lot of stuff you look for in defense, a lot of the stuff you look for in terms of the coverages, how teams are playing. Are they playing man-to-man coverage? Are they playing a zone? Are they going to blitz? Are they going to fake a blitz? You know, are, are the defensive linemen going to what they call stunt, which is mean do they run a loop, run behind each other to try and clear a path, or will they just fire out and try and get through the gap? I mean, there's all that, I guess for the lack of a better word, nuance to the game that uh, – the average fan, if you're just watching the quarterback throw the ball, you kind of miss. But this other stuff really kind of goes a long way towards explaining who wins and loses, and that's when I'm watching the tape,
0: that's what I try and follow. How do you watch what's going on on the line and not, not see what, where the ball goes? I oh, know it, it takes you there. It does. When, when, you, when you watch the game
1: long enough, it all falls together. But it starts, it starts with the line play. If, if, the guy, if, if one of your guys up front gets beat badly off the snap, then the play has no chance to work. Uh, if the guy's up front blow an assignment, like if you have a if you have a, a blocking scheme where they're all supposed to go one way, but one guy gets confused or goes the wrong way, you see I see it immediately and the, the play's dead. There's there's Shady McCoy can sometimes save a bad play. An individually particularly skilled, talented runner can sometimes a play can break down in front of him, but with his own individual ability, he can see it, break it, and still get outside and get yardage. But that's the exception. Usually if the guys up front break down, then the whole play breaks down.
0: We only have a few minutes left. And uh, you have as one of your lists some of the great names that players had. (laughs) And I have to ask you about this guy, Bibbles Bobble. Bibbles Bobble. 1952 and 1955 and fifty-six. Now, Mm -hmm. what is it about him that merits his own section in the profiles part of the book? Um, He was a
1: good player, uh, but his name is just fascinating to me. Uh, his, his real name was Ed Bawel, B-A-W-E-L. Uh, he was a defensive back and a receiver and a halfback. I mean, back in those days, this was the 50s, it wasn't unusual for guys to play kind of both ways interchangeably. They weren't the specialists they are today. But he was a good player. If you look at his stats, I mean, he's a good punt returner, intercepted a lot of passes for his time, and when he had the ball in his hands, he did some pretty cool things. But his name was Ed Bawel, but his it was pronounced Bowel, but people would pronounce it Bobble, so it just seemed to fit together that it, Bibble's Bobble, and for a guy who was a good player, you would think a name Bibble's Bobble would have sort of a Three Stooges kind of quality to it. You would expect him to be a guy that ball would be hitting him on the helmet and falling on the ground. wasn't the case. I mean, he was a really good player, uh, but when I was just starting to follow the team in the 50s, he was one of the players on the team, and for an 8-year-old kid, hearing the public address announcer say, you know, back to receive this punt, Bibbles bobble. When you're a kid, that just makes you laugh. So, um, I, when I put the book together, I said, you know what, Chuck Benarek has to be in there, <laughs> <Yeah>. Wilbert <laughs> Montgomery has to be in there. But you know who else has to be in there? <laughs> Bibbles Bobble has to be in there. But that actually led me to another part where I did the great nicknames in team's history, uh, which every team has great nicknames. And so when I put Bibbles in, in the profile section, the player profile section, I also, in the back, in the sidelines chapter, did a whole thing about the great nicknames in team's history. But clearly it starts with Bibbles Bobble.
0: Bucko Kilroy.
1: Bucko Kilroy. Frank Bucko Kilroy. Uh, which he said was a name he got as, as, uh, as a kid. Um, like a guy on in his block, he was from Port Richmond section of Philadelphia, North Philadelphia, um, and a guy in, in his neighborhood, because he was a big kid, even as a little kid, uh, and there was a guy on his block that used to, used to call him, hey, you know, he's a young buck, You know, he's a big buck, and then they, that turned into bucko, and then that followed him all through Temple University and into the NFL, and he, he was one of the great players on the 48-49 team that won the back-to-back world championships.
0: Randall Cunningham.
1: Randall Cunningham maybe the most spectacular player in the history of the franchise uh... in terms of just his individual ability and the plays that he could make i mean there are a lot of people that will tell you that the play that he made on monday night football against the new york giants uh... in nineteen eighty eight where carl banks comes in and chops his legs out from under him and and randall puts his hand down on the ground props himself up bounces back up and throws a touchdown pass is one of the most spectacular plays in the history of Monday Night Football, I mean, I, I think they did a survey of what the most spectacular plays in history of Monday Night Football. I think that won. Um, it's considered one of the most spectacular touchdown plays in NFL history and probably one of the most spectacular individual efforts in Eagles history. I mean, I don't know if there's any other quarterback that's ever played that could have done what he did. And Randall did those kinds of things kind of on a weekly basis. In terms of being able to both run and throw the football, he's one of the most remarkable athletes I've seen And he's certainly one of the most remarkable athletes that's ever worn an Eagles uniform.
0: Tom Brookshire.
1: Uh, One of the pound-for-pound toughest players uh, in franchise history. Uh, The best open field tackler I think the Eagles have ever had. Uh, He was a defensive back, played on the corner, uh, and it's a tough position to play. You have to cover receivers, but also sometimes you're alone on an island with a running back coming down, and it's the open field. And everybody sees it. And if you miss, everybody sees you miss. And you don't have any help. Uh, you're alone. And, and Tommy, and there's some defensive backs that can cover, but can't make that play, that can't make that open field tackle, that don't have the athletic ability and frankly don't have the toughness to do it. Brookshire did. Uh, and nobody ran through Tommy. When he came around the corner, even in the big open field, even if it was Jim Brown, there wasn't anybody, no, one-on-one, nobody could bring Jim Brown down, but Tommy Brookshire could. And Tommy didn't brag about his career much. He was, he was a terrific player. The Eagles have retired his number 40 for good reason. He was that good a player. And he was really a key guy on the 1960 team. When he broke his leg in 61, that was really kind of the end. The team really went downhill from that point. But I remember Tommy, who didn't brag much about himself, one time said to me, he said, and I put this quote in the book, he said, I played against a lot of Hall of Famers. He said, but they didn't make the Hall of Fame the day they played me. And I, I think that was a very fair statement. He went up against a lot, of, a lot of really great players. And they had great careers, and they're in the Hall of Fame, and Tommy's not. But on the days when they went head-to-head, Tommy usually won the battle.
0: At the risk of making you blush, you are in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, sort of,
1: since 1995.
0: What do you remember about Induction Day?
1: Uh, I remember everything. I remember everything. I, I remember getting the phone call that told me that, that I was in. And then uh, I remember calling my f- parents who were living in Florida and telling them. Um, I had been up for three years. I, had been, I, I knew I was a finalist for three years and had not gotten in. I knew that. And I knew I was up again in 95. But, I, I, I mean, generally it's, it's, it's an honor that comes to guys that are much older. And sometimes it comes posthumously. Um, I was still very much in the flow. I was still fairly young and doing the job and so I kind of thought well maybe my day will come but not now. And so when they told me that it had happened I was I was really surprised and overwhelmed and when I called my parents they were overwhelmed because as I told you my parents were huge football fans so this had tremendous significance to them and I remember going to Canton um, with my parents and walking through the Hall of Fame with them and them seeing my name uh, And my father, who was your classic World War II veteran, greatest generation guy who withholds emotion, that kind of thing, uh, I remember my father hugging me and and saying, I'm so proud of you. Uh, I remember that very vividly.
0: That's going to have to be the last word because we are out of time. We've been speaking with Ray Didinger. He's the author of this book, The New Eagles Encyclopedia. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books,
1: a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.